Two years ago, Orange County voters made history when they flipped four congressional seats from Republican to Democrat. This year, however, voters flipped two of those seats back. These shifts suggest that this increasingly diverse county is neither the deep red land of Richard Nixon nor a blue stronghold. It's purple. How have local and national demographic changes changed politics today? And what is in store for immigrant communities under President-elect Joe Biden? From the University of California, Irvine, I'm Aaron Orlowski, and you're listening to the UCI Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Luis DiCipio, who is a professor of political science and Chicano-Latino studies here at UCI. Professor DiCipio, thank you for joining me today on the UCI podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Well, let's look first at the local results here in Orange County. Tallies so far show that two congressional seats that had flipped in 2018 from Republican to Democrat have now flipped back from Democrat to Republican. So Republicans picked up two seats. Can you tell us some more about what happened there? To understand what happened in 2020, I think you have to go back to 2018. Um, And Orange County, I think, surprised and shocked the nation when uh, all of its congressional delegation um, uh, was Democratic, uh, a first in in American political history. Um, I think what happened, you know, 2018 and then 2020 sort of reflect that uh, Orange County is a purple area, meaning that it has you know, sort of Democratic adherence, it has Republican adherence, and then it has a large middle, and that middle determines the election. Uh, so in 2018, as part of sort of a national wave against the Republicans, um, all of the congressional seats went to the Democrats. Um, this time, where the national electorate was more divided, and uh, uh, President Trump was guiding Republicans nationally, um, two of the seats uh, flipped back to the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, candidates make a difference, and I think the Republican candidate in at least one of the races was much stronger in 2020 uh, than in 2018. So you mentioned President Trump guiding things and and the strength of the candidates. Do you think there are any other dynamics that have caused that change from 2018 to 2020? Well, I think, you know, the the county is changing. So, you know, the fact that we're now a purple district or a purple county is really different than before. We have a lot more independence here. Um, We certainly have a lot of uh, racial and ethnic minorities who nationally might you know, be more likely to vote for the Democrats. But here, I think, you know, more likely to be uh, a little independent and, you know, willing to go with the candidate. Um, I think we see uh, candidates coming out of those communities more than we used to. Um, mm. Yeah, but we shouldn't shouldn't miss the larger point that uh, uh, President-elect Biden won the county pretty decisively. Uh, Secretary Clinton won the county uh, pretty decisively in 2016 as well. Well, Let's uh let's back up a little bit because as you said, uh, Orange County is increasingly a purple region. Uh, but for a long time, that wasn't really the case, and this was a Republican stronghold. For how long was that the case? Uh, Orange County was pretty solidly Republican from the 1930s on, and obviously in the 1930s, the population was pretty sparse. It wasn't today's Orange County. But as Orange County evolved and uh, initially sort of a bedroom community uh, in the 1950s and 60s and then sort of developed its own uh, industrial and manufacturing base, um, 
uh, in the 70s and 80s, uh, a lot of the people that were drawn to the county heard the message of the Republican Party, probably particularly uh, Governor Reagan, then then President Reagan, um, and, you know, bought accepted and, and, and endorsed um, the Republican agenda of that era of, you know, national defense and, and uh, lower taxes and um, uh, more of a, a libertarian approach uh, to uh, governance. Um, beginning in the 90s, uh, the northern part of the county um, tilted more democratic. And then, you know, going into the aughts and the uh, 2010s, you saw the rest of the county becoming purple, meaning that, you know, uh, uh, some years it would go Democratic, some years it would go Republican. Um, at the countywide level, though, I think it's now pretty solidly a Democratic area. As I say, the last uh, two uh, presidential races have, have been won, and not just won narrowly, but won pretty, pretty decisively. Uh, by the Democrats. Local governance is still, you know, it's obviously nonpartisan because this is California, but many of the local office holders, particularly in the central part of the county and the southern part of the county, uh, lean more to the Republican uh, side. Well, that's interesting to to think about because it seems like in general nationwide ticket splitting uh, where a voter would choose uh, candidates from different parties is increasingly rare. But from what you're saying here, uh, it seems like it's not uncommon for a voter to choose maybe the Democratic presidential candidate, but then vote for the Republican local candidates. Yeah. Well, at the local level, there often isn't much choice. <laughs> I mean, the Democrats <laughs> have, have not been, uh, at least in the southern part of the county and to a moderate degree in the central part of the county, haven't been very active at, at running candidates. I think that will change. Um, one of the sort of interesting things in 2020 is it looks like a couple of the state Senate seats have flipped from Republican to Democratic. Um, and, you know, that, that suggests that the Democrats are becoming a little more tactical about, you know, running viable candidates um, for, you know, non-federal offices um, and also ensuring that they have the financial resources to run serious campaigns. Well, one of the things that you mentioned was going back to the 1930s, Orange County has been a, a county of growth um, and there's been demographic changes ever since then, first in numbers of population, but I'm also in makeup of, of population. So as we look at how the look of Orange County has changed in recent years, how is that influencing the political leanings of the county? Certainly a lot of the people that have moved into the county, um, you know, over the last three decades um, have been folks that are more likely to hear the message of the Democratic Party. So that includes uh, you know, folks that have moved out from Los Angeles County um, uh, and, you know, have sort of brought some of the slightly more uh, progressive leanings of, of, of at least parts of Los Angeles into Orange County. The other is immigrants and then their children. Um, uh, Orange County uh, saw a big migration of Vietnamese immigrants at the end of the, the war with Vietnam. They initially uh, tilted to the Republican side, but are now becoming sort of more, more mixed. Uh, you know, the second generation, the kids that were born here are a little bit more mixed in terms of partisanship. Um, we've also seen large scale migration um, from Northern Asia, um, and that more in the central part of the county. Again, you know, the immigrant generation tended to be conservative, but their kids um, a little bit more open, um, and and maybe that leads to some of that ticket splitting. Um, we've also seen um, a large uh, 
primarily Mexican, but Latino migration um, into the northern part of the county. And then that the kids of that migration have diffused through the county. So you're absolutely right. I mean, this isn't the Orange County of the 1960s anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the growth that we experience on a, on a daily basis, I think, is reflective of that. And these immigrant communities, candidates can't count on going one way or the other. It's a very diverse uh, set of beliefs that they, they have, depending on the community and the individual. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it, it's often a mistake that uh, sort of national leaders and national parties make to speak of a Latino vote or mm-hmm. an Asian American vote. Uh, I mean, that's never been accurate. And I think the 2020 election uh, reflected that pretty clearly. Um, that said, what I think immigrant communities and by immigrant communities here, I'm not just speaking of the immigrant generation, but but their U.S. born children um, need is is political recruitment. Um, you know, it's not sort of automatic to participate in U.S. politics. It's actually pretty complicated. You need to register. You need to know when the election is. Uh, in 2020, a lot of that was pretty obvious. But but in many you know local elections and 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 the off year elections, that sort of how you engage is is not so obvious. And I think where the the both parties have failed um, is to invest um, as they did a couple generations ago in training. Uh, new participants in 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 the routinized kind of politics. So, um, you know, if you invest today, uh, you're likely to win over you know that family or, or you know maybe more broadly the extended family into your party for for a generation. Yeah. Well, speaking of the the Latino vote, it seemed like on the national level there were some shifts uh, this year, 2020, compared to 2016. Um, the Miami region seemed to shift more towards Trump. Um, but meanwhile, some states that have significant Latino populations shifted over into the Democratic column like Arizona. So can you tell us, you know, what do you see as some of the differences uh, in how the the Latino vote chose their candidates this year compared to 2016? Sure. You know, I, I think the the media again, sort of going in with this, this sort of monolithic nation, notion of a, uh, of an ethnic vote, um, didn't look as closely as maybe they should have. Um, certainly I think the Latino vote, if you average it nationally, did vote slightly more for president Trump, uh, in 2020 than it had in 2016, but I'd emphasize the word slightly. Um, and I have a couple explanations for that. One is, uh, secretary Clinton was just better known in Latino communities than, mm. than was vice president Biden. You know, she, uh, through you know Bill Clinton's term and then um, in her services, the Senate made her own personal connections to Latino leaders nationally that uh, Vice President Biden just didn't have. So some of it, he went in with a slight disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the second disadvantage that he had was that uh, he wasn't doing a lot of uh, outdoor campaigning um, in in the 2020 race uh, because of of the COVID crisis. Um, so he didn't do the kind of rallies that tend to excite and recruit new participants. Remember. I, I said that one important thing with uh, immigrant and their children electorates is to is to do a little you know outreach and, and mobilization. So he did less of that, and he certainly did a lot less of that in Latino concentration areas. Um, third disadvantage he had was maybe a legacy of the the Obama administration. That was that President Obama had had opened relations with Cuba, and that was very um, uh, alienating to mm. a segment of the Cuban American electorate, particularly in, in Miami Dade County. So, where you know, I think you're absolutely right that nationally uh, there was a little bit a, a, a small gain in in President Trump's uh, vote among Latinos. A lot of it can be explained uh, with you know just 
not bringing a lot of new people into the process, a little bit of a shift in 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 Miami-Dade, um, and evidently a little bit of a shift along the, the Texas border. And I have a less, less rigorous explanation for that. On the other hand, um, Arizona would not have been in the Democratic camp if there hadn't been a sort of steady growth in the Latino vote uh, in Arizona over the last decade or so. Um, and Vice President Biden certainly uh, was advantaged by that. Um, Nevada, which we now sort of take for granted as a Democratic state, sort of went through that same process of becoming steadily Democratic with a growth in the Latino vote and, and other communities, of course, um, uh, over the last decade under uh, the leadership of, of former Senator Harry Reid, who knew how to run a ground campaign um, to, to bring in uh, new voters in, in Nevada. Well, in the conversation and the messaging around immigration issues was different this year compared to 2016. Trump focused in his 2016 campaign significantly on immigration. The build the wall chants were a staple of his rallies, but that wasn't so much of a focus this year. You know, what effects do you think that had on the election? It, it was very interesting. You know, it, it's often said that that President Trump doesn't have strategy. You know, he just sort of goes with his gut. Um, that gut has worked, let me, let me acknowledge. Uh, but um, in the 2020 rallies, there was much less messaging around immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, it was replaced in some ways with sort of vague sort of conspiracy theories, but also a conversation about COVID. So I don't know if Trump or Trump's advisors sort of recognized that they could make some small but very tactically important gains among Latino voters, um, or uh, if it was just that there was other you know other things that went to the top of the agenda. Uh, but I think you're absolutely right that uh, that diminishment of the nativist message uh, worked to President Trump's advantage uh, among Latinos arguably other immigrant groups as well. Asian American, the Asian American vote for Trump went up a little bit as well um, and didn't seem to alienate um, his base uh, who turned out uh, for him in, you know, in, in historic numbers. Well, let's look a little bit at the future here. So uh, President-elect Biden um, will face potentially one of two different scenarios, depending on what happens in Georgia. Uh, Two Senate seats are going to a runoff there. And so the Senate in January might be in Democratic hands or it might be in Republican hands. So in your view, how different are those two scenarios for Biden's administration? Uh, night and day come to mind. Um, <laughs> the uh, uh, opportunity, you know, it, it has been, I think, 36 years since a new, newly elected president entered the presidency, uh, not controlling um, both houses of Congress. If President Biden is to achieve many of the promises that he's made, particularly in domestic policy, has a little bit more authority in, in foreign policy. Uh, if he's going to follow, if he's going to achieve any of those goals in domestic policy, he needs uh, Congress behind him. Um, certainly around some economic issues, I imagine you can work with Republicans, but around social justice issues, and here I would include immigration reform, uh, environmental policy, um, some policing reform. The Democrats need to win those two seats in Georgia, and he needs to be tactical in appointing his cabinet so that he doesn't take away any of his existing uh, Democratic support. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's going to be very hard because a lot of the leading sort of folks that you'd think of for the cabinet um, come out of state, you know, are, are senators and and uh, a couple of those at least, uh, Senator Warren, um, Senator Sanders, uh, come from states with uh, Republican governors who would 
probably <laughs> appoint Republican successors if either of those oh. folks were to move into the cabinet. Mm-hmm. If, if Vice President Biden is going to be able to appeal to you know the folks that voted for him around policy issues and not just because they opposed President Trump, um, he needs uh, to win those two seats. It strikes me as, as sort of unlikely. Uh, the uh, you know two runoffs um, in a in a state that has only marginally shifted to the Democrats um, in the uh, in the twenty twenty election uh, generally turn out in off cycle elections is lower. Um, it's going to be hard uh, to to win those two seats, and you know the. I think there's a certain amount of fatigue in Georgia, as there is in the nation, about yet more election. Well, speaking specifically about the issue of immigration, uh, you know, what do you think might be in store under under Biden? I mean, as you mentioned before, Biden struggled a little bit more with the Latino community compared to Clinton four years ago. So, so what do you think is in store under Biden? Well, I think he'll use executive action for some narrow, targeted, but very, very important immigration reforms. One would be to uh, reestablish the DACA program and potentially with a slightly stronger uh, legal foundation. Um, it's been challenged in the courts and, you know, sort of on on pins and needles, regardless of, of President Trump's efforts to eliminate it. Um, I think that he will use his oversight of the Department of Homeland Security uh, to refocus immigration enforcement efforts back to the model that was used in the Obama administration, which was to focus not sort of in a scattershot way on all undocumented immigrants in the United States, uh, but instead on those that have outstanding orders of deportation or criminal convictions, which I think is a much more sort of appropriate use of, of the immigration enforcement agency. I think he'll um, undo some of the damage that uh, uh, President Trump has done to the naturalization program, the ability of legal permanent residents uh, to become United States citizens. And I think he'll reestablish, as Trump has largely eliminated, our, our uh, refugee and asylum program. Um, but those are things he can do. He can, you know, that President Trump damage through executive action or through oversight of the agency Hmm. that President-elect Biden can quickly reverse once he assumes the presidency. The challenge Biden faces is that he will not be able to achieve his goal of a more comprehensive reform to the immigration system that would address sort of who's eligible to immigrate legally, what we do about the non-DACA recipients in the Mm -hmm. undocumented immigrant community. create a, a stronger, more predictable foundation uh, for refugee and asylum policy. And as we emerge from from the COVID era, uh, to focus our guest worker programs, of which we have many that admit large numbers of immigrants every year, on the parts of the economy that need the most, as opposed to the industries that have best been able to uh, uh, lobby Congress. Well, what other issues uh, around social justice, do you think will be at the forefront uh, under a Biden administration? Um, I think Vice or President-elect Biden has made the commitment um, to focus on environmental issues, and I think this is very much a social justice issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I fully expect that uh, we'll re-enter the Paris uh, Agreement. I mean, I think uh, President-elect Biden has committed to that very, very strongly already. Um, but I think that we will need sort of investment in clean energy. And that's where it's having Congress um, as an ally, uh, I think, would really help. I think you can uh, 
get some Republicans to, to vote um, for, for some programs in that area. Um, I think using the Justice Department, um, as the Obama administration did very effectively, uh, to hold local police forces accountable for excesses, mm-hmm. um, you know, will will return. And I, it would it would it wouldn't even surprise me if some of the same people that had sort of been working in justice late in the uh, in the Obama administration were to return because those were those programs were incredibly effective and actually local police forces largely liked them because they gave them clear guidelines as to what they what they could do um, and not do. Um, I think probably the biggest contribution of, of President Biden to social justice is just to reframe the national narrative. There aren't uh, good people on both sides, and he uh, will be clear about that and will set boundaries for what is appropriate in the American system and um, not inflame sort of the extremes left or right for that matter. Well, so... President-elect Biden won the Electoral College and he won the popular vote by a significant margin. Um, And in some of those crucial Electoral College states, the vote was by a a thinner margin. So when you look at the messages that voters were sending this election, what is that key message? What do you think voters were saying? I think there were two messages that were sort of mutually incompatible. Um, there was a, a segment of the electorate um, that believes that uh, President Trump speaks for them and um, were energized by his messaging and his uh, lack of concern for uh, COVID and uh, the desire for economic growth that he promised. And there was a, a separate message from the parts of the Democratic Party that were dissatisfied with President Trump on multiple dimensions and sought uh, reform of the system along a number of dimensions. Um, President-elect Biden has promised to try to bring those communities together. I, I, I wish him luck. I, I think it's, it's a very challenging task. Uh, but the, the sort of near even division of those populations and the way we've structured the United States Senate, which is not reflective of the, you know, of, of where population uh, lives in the United States, uh, makes it very difficult for him uh, to, to achieve that goal. But simply dampening down some of the excesses in inflaming uh, parts of the American population, I think will help. Professor DeCipio, thank you for joining me today on the UCI podcast. My pleasure. The UCI Podcast is a production of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs at the University of California, Irvine. Please subscribe to the UCI Podcast wherever you listen.